Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Every Sunday leading up to our candlelight service, we're going to have an Advent candlelight scripture reading from different families here at Calvary. Thank you guys for that. Uh, I told them I wanted to mix it up a little bit, maybe have a young family, a not-so-young family, and they interpreted that however they wanted. But we finished up Colossians last week, and so we are going to jump into a new book. It's going to take us two weeks to get it through, so go ahead and open up to Leviticus. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> two weeks in Leviticus? No, we're going to go into Philemon. So uh, if you are turning there trying to find it, it's going to be hard to find because it's just a one-pager right before the book of Hebrews. So if you find Hebrews, it's right before that. Or if you get to the Thessalonians, the Timothy, Titus, then it's, it's right in between there, one little page. Um, it's always kind of fun. Some people are like, hey, you know, that, that was a book in the Bible. It's actually a pretty good one I like. And so we're going to read the whole text um, each this week and next week, and just have a couple different ideas that we want to focus on. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and follow along with me, starting obviously in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. Most likely he is writing this at the same time he wrote the book of Colossians, and it was probably delivered at the same time because... Philemon, receiving the book, is a part of the church in Colossae. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker in Apphia, our sister in Archippus, our fellow soldier. Remember him last week. That's when Paul said, hey, make sure you fulfill the ministry the Lord gave you. That's who he's talking about. And to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. My brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you accordingly. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be done by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. 
say nothing of your owing me, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, and I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is the book of Philemon. So you can go home and be like, we studied a whole book. That's how crazy my church is. A whole book of the Bible. Which one? The one pager. I love the story of Philemon. There's three main characters, obviously, Paul, Philemon, and a guy named Onesimus. And we'll do a little background of what is happening and why Paul is writing. So Philemon is a, you would almost kind of say an elder in the church. He's a higher up. He's not just a, a uh, seat warmer. He, he is a servant in the church. He's, he's a great dude, has a great reputation behind him. We see that in Paul's letter. And he owns a slave named Onesimus. And a lot of people say, well, how could you be upstanding in the church and still own slaves? And we've hinted at it before that the slavery that we see written about in the New Testament is different than what happened in our country a uh, hundred and so years ago, and that is different. And some people say, well, why doesn't the Bible reject slavery? Why doesn't it speak out against it? Because the, because the culture in which the New Testament was written, you're not going to overthrow the Roman government. I mean, you can't even speak bad about them or they could just kill you. Like our ability to stand up and say, I think that president or this president is garbage and trash and da, 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 and I haven't even named the president yet, but you have the freedom to be able to do that. And the president doesn't have the ability to kill you because of it. And so in the same breath, how Rome wants to operate within its government, the church is submissive to that. And even once more, even Jesus says, surrender to the government. That is an ordained ministry of God to rule over people. And so when we sit here as the church and we think about how horrible or evil or apart from God our government is becoming, all we're doing is joining the ranks with the New Testament. That even Jesus, who lived under a far worse government, still said, pray for your government leaders. Surrender to them. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so Philemon owned slaves. It was normal within that culture, and it is different than what we think of, so we can't write our history back into the New Testament. It's a totally different thing. Great study to look at. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that towards the end of the service. And so Philemon owns a slave named Onesimus. At some point, Onesimus had enough of it. He steals from Philemon, don't know what he took, maybe money, maybe his wife's jewelry, maybe he had a really nice guitar hanging on the wall, signed by Van Halen or something, worth a lot of money. And he took that and he ran to Rome, hawked the guitar, spent his money on crazy living, but he robs Philemon and he goes to Rome. We don't understand and we don't know how Paul and Onesimus crossed paths. All we know is Paul is in prison and Onesimus is a thief and a runaway slave. You could probably guess maybe how they came across paths. Did, there, was there a one-nighter that Onesimus had to serve because he was drunk and disorderly on the streets and whatever it is? I don't know. 
but they came across each other and Paul leads him to the Lord. It's what he's meaning when he says, I became his father. So he comes to the Lord, he shares the gospel with Onesimus and he leads him to the Lord. Now, as he's probably getting to know him, he said, well, Onesimus, tell me your story. Where do you come from? What's, you know, how did you end up in Rome? Same thing I do here. I love to ask people, are you new to the lake? How did you come to the lake? Where do you come from? Why did you move to Missouri? It's called misery for a reason, right? I love to hear people's story and how we migrate across our country and our world and we end up here. Paul most likely did the same thing. And Onesimus is saying, well, I'm actually from a town called Colossae. Paul says, oh, really? I might know some people there. Who do you know? And well, I'm actually a runaway slave, which would be hard to say because that is a, a crime worthy of death. Onesimus, Philemon has every right to kill Onesimus and, be, and put him to death for his crimes. And so that's probably not something that you really want to be open about and like, oh yeah, I ran away from, because Paul could say, oh, I know Philemon. Let me just give him a call right now. Hey, I got your runaway slave. You want to kill him? How much money you got on his head? I, you know, we, we're trying to do a little ministry thing here. We could, we could really use the extra income. But Onesimus, for whatever reasons, open up to Paul and he tells him what's going on. And so Paul, I think, already at the beginning, is seeing God orchestrating something. And there's a whole uh, topic that we could discuss about God's providence. See, I think God works far more through his providence than he does through miracles. And, not, and, and that should be, because miracles should be rare. That's why they're called miracles. If miracles become more and more uh, happening frequency, then they kind of lose that miracle status. But God's providence, he uses normal everyday interactions and activities of our human life to bring about his will. And so he is crossing paths. Why was Paul in Rome? Why did Onesimus run to Rome? Why? That is God's providence. Even in the Old Testament, you can see the story of Joseph as a story of God's providence. How are you going to get this Jewish guy to be number two in Egypt? Without any miracles, he's going to bring about that through his providence. And so Paul now is writing to Philemon because he could keep Onesimus. And he says that, I wanted to keep him with me. He's useful to me now. I would love to keep him with me. But Paul wants to do the right thing. And he wants to give Philemon an opportunity to do the right thing. Not legally, but because of his faith in Jesus. And so here's kind of the story. And the fun part that we know from Colossians is, uh, was it Tychicus and Onesimus are the ones that are delivering the letters to them. So here's Onesimus walking up with this letter, hoping to hand a Philemon, hey, don't kill me, read this first, okay? Like, read this, see what Paul has to say, and then we can talk about it. When you think about the faith that it would have took of Onesimus to go back home, and know what he is facing. Kind of like what some of us did on Thursday. I don't want to go back home. I don't want to see my in-laws. I don't want to see my family. And some of the tension that we can have and those family functions can be really hard. And so here's Onesimus walking back. And so you see in verse 11, his name, Onesimus, means useful. So even Paul's kind of using a play on his name, saying, Onesimus, he's useful, and he's living up to his name. He was formerly useless to you. Yeah, he was a runaway slave that stole from you. That's pretty useless slave to have. 
But now Onesimus, he's living up to his name because he is a believer. And not only is he a believer, he is in ministry with me. That he is, he is doing some real ministry for Paul, coming alongside Paul, working for him, serving Paul and serving Christ in the ministry. And so he's saying, he's very useful for me. And, and there's a lot that I could do if I could keep him, but I'm going to send him back because Paul is asking Philemon, hey, just as Onesimus is living up to his name, it's time for you to live up to your name. Now you're probably thinking, well, what does Philemon mean? I have no idea. I didn't look it up. But if you see the reputation that Philemon has, he, that's how Paul starts that letter. He's saying, because I'm hearing of your love and of your faith toward the Lord and to the saints. And the sharing of your faith is effective and people are coming to a full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And Paul is saying, I have much joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints are being refreshed through you. Philemon had a good reputation of who he was in the church. It wasn't one of those people that you walk in like, oh, there's that person. Oh, there's that guy. I wish they'd go to the church down the street. No, Philemon had a good name about himself. That there was really good, effective ministry that he was doing in refreshing the hearts of the saints and pouring into them. And that was refreshing to Paul. Why? Because as Paul is planning churches and they are putting faithful men in charge of those, the goal is that they stay faithful to the ministry. Even today, it's still heartbreaking when you hear how a church will implode for whatever reason. We've talked about that before. Some of the funny reasons churches split. One deacon gets a bigger piece of ham than the other deacon at the Christmas or Easter dinner that they had or the color of the carpet or the color of the hymnals. That's why we don't have carpet or hymnals. And I'll rip everything out of this church that could cause us to divide. We're not going to have those kind of issues here. We're going to have other issues. We need more cow kids workers. We need people to be serving in a different... Those are the issues we're going to have, not division. We're not going to have division here. And so this is refreshing to them that, that Paul is seeing Philemon serving the Lord. He is doing everything that he needs to do. And now meeting Onesimus, leading him to the Lord. Can you probably think, well, what if Onesimus didn't come to the Lord? What Paul would have done? I don't know. I don't know. But he leads him to the Lord. And now here's an opportunity for Philemon to live up to his name that he has made in the church. And so Paul is seeing an opportunity for the gospel to be lived out. And we'll get far more into the theological aspects of it next week. Because the great thing about Philemon is there's no doctrine that is taught directly. It's all indirect in how they were living this out. And I think that is a good word for us. That the biggest transformation that happens in us isn't the theology that we read, it's the theology that we live out. Even James would say it this way, be doers of the word, not hearers of the word. Because if we think, oh, we only need to hear good theology, we're deceiving ourselves. And even every Sunday when we come together and we open up the word and we read through it and we're studying through it, as we get together in life groups and we're reading and studying, it is not to fill this it's not only to fill this, but it's to fill your hands and your feet with the work of Christ in your life. And that might be, I need to step up as a husband or a father, or a wife and a mother, or a grandfather or a grandmother, or an aunt or an uncle. I need to step up as an employee. I need to step up as an employer. I need to change how I respond when people around me say things that make me want to respond bad. 
This should change how we live our lives. This is, this is the goal, the purpose of Scripture and of our faith. is isn't just, oh, we read our Bible today and we pray today, not the spiritual disciplines. Those are great. The goal is the fruit of the Spirit to come out and in and through us, that Christ could continue to work in our world, but he's going to do it through us, not around us. And so that transformation, again, read good theology. We need good theology but don't stop it short. We need to live out that good theology. And so in verse 16, I love how he says, but how much more to you? See, he understood the connection there. That, hey, this is one of your slaves. And so we don't understand fully the treatment specifically with Philemon to his slave. We see a little bit, even in the Old Testament, when you look at Joseph and Potiphar, again, it's not the same kind of style of treatment that we see, you know, a hundred and some years ago in our country. It's not even the same type of treatment that we see Israel when they're under Egyptian slavery. It is something different. There's probably far more uh, of a friendship aspect there that they're seeing each other every day and, and Philemon's inviting Onesimus to be a part of his life and his house, even though it is through serving him, you know. And so to have this understanding and say, hey, he, he, when he stole from you and he ran away, you're probably thinking, I wonder what he was gonna do. I wonder where he's gonna go. I wonder where his life would end up. Probably nowhere good, I mean, when you think about a runaway slave with only a limited amount of money, where are they going to go? What are they going to fall into? What kind of things is Onismus' life is going to be about? And so I wonder if it was refreshing to see Onismus walking up and then hearing this letter that not only is he safe and sound, but he's now a brother. So how much more to you that he was a slave, but now coming back, he's so much more. Why? Because he's a beloved brother in the flesh and in the Lord. Did you catch that? Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're brothers and sisters in the flesh. That our spiritual connection is greater than our physical connection. Because a lot of times it's like, oh, that whole blood thicker than water. Do you know the full statement? And I'm probably going to butcher it, okay? But do you know the full statement of that? Because a lot of times we use that to talk about our family, our blood family. All oh, blood's thicker than water. And that's actually the wrong interpretation of that statement. That the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of birth. So where I have family in this room, but the blood of the covenant is thicker in that water. And so he is looking at Onesimus the same way. This is your brother in the flesh and in the Lord. And Paul wanted him to do a work, wanted God to do a work in Philemon's life. See, a lot of times we look at this and we read and think, oh, here's Onesimus. And it's like, I think the person on the hot seat is not Onesimus. God already worked in his life. He's standing there with this letter looking at the person that could call for his death. Now, God, Paul wants God to do a work in Philemon. And, and what's the work? Forgiveness. How was Thanksgiving? Anybody struggle with forgiveness? Anybody see that family? Or you didn't see that family because of that word, forgiveness? And that's the mystery of forgiveness. Sometimes it impacts the forgiver far more than the forgiven. I think I've lost more sleep and had more stress and anxiety 
uh, if I should forgive someone than if someone should forgive me. That's where I struggle the most with. That's the biggest work that God has done in my life is as the forgiver, not the forgiven. And he says, but how much more to you that there's a bigger work that God wants to do. And so in verses 20 and 21, he's saying, refresh my heart in Christ, that the work that we do in serving and forgiving and, and having unity as brothers and sisters in Christ, this is refreshing our hearts in the Lord. Have you ever been the third party of a dispute like that? Have you ever heard how there was division somewhere and then, and then there's reconciliation and restoration? Doesn't that refresh your heart in Christ that God is moving and working, allowing us to approach each other in humility and forgiveness, accepting forgiveness? Isn't it refreshing to hear when people give grace and mercy to each other? Now, isn't these the virtues that we should be deep in, not scarce in? This is what brings refreshments from the Lord is that when we are living out this theology, when we're living out the very things that Jesus was about, that if he was gonna sit and eat with sinners and tax collectors, if he was gonna bring forgiveness and grace, love and mercy, isn't that what should mark us? Isn't that the things that we should be deep into? And so Paul is saying, refresh my heart in Christ. Here's an opportunity. Opportunity for Onesimus, opportunity for you, opportunity to refresh my heart. This is an opportunity in Christ. That this isn't just a, a coincidence or, oh, you know, darn the luck. Hey, like, look how this worked out. That's, that's pretty nifty. No, this is God's providence bringing about an opportunity for his gospel to go forth in word and in deed. So he's confident of your obedience, is what Paul says to Philemon. I'm confident of your obedience, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Don't we want to be people like that? That when we're asked to do something, when we're encouraged to do something, that people would be confident of our obedience to it? Paul didn't look at Philemon and say, you know, here's an opportunity, here's something you could do. And Paul wasn't thinking, you know, but I don't think he'll do it. We'll see if it happens this time. He's kind of 50-50, he's kind of shaky on if he's really going to keep his commitment. No, he's confident of his obedience. And not only that, he goes, I know he's going to do far more than even what I have asked. And I think that's why Paul at the very beginning says, I'm bold enough to command you. I'm older than you. Most likely Paul brought Philemon to the Lord. That's why he said, you owe me your very self. Like because of my position, because of my age, because of who I am in the church, like, I'm bold enough to command you to do what is right. But for love's sake, I appeal to you. Why? Because if Paul commands it, the best that Philemon can do is disobedience. But if he appeals to him and let it be love's sake, all the credit goes to Philemon. And not only that, it's not just obedience to what the command is, but when it's just an appeal, Philemon can do far more than that one of the things even for me as a leader as one of the pastors over the staff I say this a lot I can be bold enough to command you but I'm going to appeal to the staff hey don't you think we should do this or what do you think about this and I kind of leave it open-ended it actually drives some of the staff nuts they don't know this is where I got that from because I can I can walk up and tell them because of my position because I'm bold enough in Christ I can tell them what to do and some of them wish just tell me what you want I want to appeal to you for love's sake. 
I want you to catch the vision of where we're going. Because if I command it, the best you can do is obedience to it. But if we have the same heart, if we have the same mind for ministry and how to operate in the church, how much more will you be able to do because of that? Instead of walking around and looking and thinking of your ministry and think, okay, what would Nick want? I'm going to do that. What would Nick want? I'm going to do that. What does the Lord want? And, and will I do that? There's so much far more that Philemon can do here. And that's the line. Even far more. See, bare minimum Christianity isn't biblical Christianity. And a lot of times we hear that question being asked, what do I, what's the least amount that I have to do to be saved? We might not say it that way, but we live it, right? How close can I get to the edge and still be considered a Christian? Or what's the very least I need to be able to do and I'm still welcomed in a place like this? How am I, what's the least I can do and still be considered a Christian? The problem, that's the wrong question we should be asking. Instead of uh, how little following Jesus isn't about how little I can do, but how much I can pour myself out. So if you have your Bible, we're gonna go to a few spots here. One of my favorites, Matthew 16. Jesus is saying, if anyone would come after me, if anybody wants to follow me, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We used to say that in high school, like as Christians, like, oh, just carrying my cross, carrying my cross. And I kept hearing that. And I, so I started asking, you know, where are you going with that cross? Because Jesus knew where he was going with that cross. Sacrifice. So when we pick up our cross, that's not just something cool that we put on and, hey, look at us, got a cross and I'm walking around. No, we're going to the place of sacrifice. We're going to the place where we die to ourselves and it's not about us. We are denying ourselves to the point that we are sacrificing ourselves and we're following Jesus. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Paul would say it a different way in Philippians 1 verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so understand the wording here, for it has been granted to you. That word means it's been graced to you, that there is a grace from God giving to you for the sake of Christ not only to believe, yes, that is, there is a grace from God for us to believe in Christ, but also it's graced from God for us to suffer for him. Think about that, for us to suffer. This is a good opportunity for us in the Lord. Paul would say it one more different way, 2 Timothy 4, 6, and I love how he says this, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He knew that because of all his suffering and getting ready to step off and go to be with the Lord, my life is being poured out, which is an Old Testament reference to a drink offering. You know what a drink offering symbolized? Joy. 
joy, the suffering of Paul's life being poured out for the Lord. This was a joyous occasion. And so for us, following Jesus, how much can we pour out of ourselves? Not what's the very minimum that I can do, but how much can I pour out for the Lord? How can my life not be, a be, be about me? How can I suffer for the sake of Christ because of the joy that is before me? Not the I really don't want to do this and the hesitancy and the struggle, but the joy of the Lord is what caused and motivated Paul to pour out his life. And I love the line, and I've said it before, a faith that costs us nothing will produce in us the same. So the faith in us, that it costs me nothing. It doesn't change my life, nothing like that. There's no hurt, no pain, nothing whatsoever. It doesn't even inconvenience me. A faith that costs us nothing will produce in us the same. And we've talked about it the last couple of weeks. You know, the, what situation, what circumstance, what season of life has grown your faith the most? And we talked about those are not easy seasons. They were actually very difficult ones that grew our faith the most. Well, those difficulties in our life, they're going to cost us. Like Philemon is having a difficult season in his life. He was robbed and one of his slaves ran away. Like he is hurting because of this, but we gain strength. You know, the problems in our life are, go are going to cost us. There's going to be issues. It's, it's going to take time and money and resource with different problems that we have in our life, but we're going to learn wisdom. Or dangers in our life will cost us, but we're going to grow courageous. As a youth pastor, I used to pray this before big trips, especially when we went to Honduras, where the MS-13 gang controlled everything. We'd circle up, and you got all these moms crying because their little baby's going overseas. It's like, we're going south. We're going over the Gulf of Mexico. Calm down, mom, right? Not a big deal. Like, all the land touches, you can get there. And we'd be praying, and they're all crying. And I would tell the parents, I'm not praying for safety. The look of death that those moms would give me, you will pray, holy man, safety over my child. I said, I'm not gonna pray for safety. I'm gonna pray, Lord, whatever brings us closer to you, I want that to happen, whatever it is. Is there gonna be dangers? Maybe. But last time I checked, the fourth man in the fire was in the fire. He wasn't with them outside of the fire. When Daniel was in the den, it wasn't on the outside. It was in the midst of it. And one of the, some of the greatest ways that we see the Lord move in the early church is not in the easy times, but in the hard and the difficult and the moments that are going to be the most dangerous because that's when we grow in being our courage. Troubled people. We could all probably think of an Onesimus in our life that has done stuff that has cost us things, resources, money, time, energy. There's things that cost us, but we deepen in our love. We understand what it is to love like Jesus, to love the unlovable, to love those that the world doesn't really want a whole lot to do with. And so, yes, a faith that costs nothing produces the same, but it's in those things that cost us that grow the most in our life if we allow Christ to move and work. And you're probably thinking, okay, what did it cost Philemon? Financial? Not really. 
Yes, Onesimus stole from him, but listen to what Paul writes, and we'll get into the deeper meaning of it next week. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. And I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. So whatever Onesimus stole from you, however much that is, I'll make a financial restitution of that. Paul is going to pay it up. So what did this cost Philemon? Nothing financial. Paul's going to pay it up. So what is it? Could you imagine being the the master and your slave stole from you and ran away? What kind of mark that would have against your reputation in the community? And then the audacity to that same guy to come back and have this little letter from a pastor and say, oh yeah, here, you should forgive me. Now, obviously that wasn't Onismus's heart, but isn't that how the, the community around him would see that? Specifically those that were not followers of Jesus? And I bet those outside of the church and even those on the inside of the church were sitting here, I wonder how this is going to play out. Is he going to do the right thing? Or is he going to do the grace thing? How's this going to play out? Because again, his reputation is at risk. It's his pride. And that's the hard part about forgiveness, isn't it? It requires humility to give it. And it requires humility to receive it. That's why we don't like forgiveness. We, we love the idea that our sins are not held against us, even from our fellow brothers and sisters, even those of our family, those outside of the church. We love that idea. We just don't like the road that it takes to get there. I don't want to humble myself to say, I forgive you. No, it's easier to hold it against you and just to hold it there. We think so anyway. And we don't want to walk that humility of walking up to somebody and saying, hey, I've wronged you. In some of the worst ways, would you forgive me? Because you're worried about, will that person really forgive me? Am I really worth forgiving? We even ask those same questions of the Lord. Am I truly forgiven? Don't you know what I've done, Lord? How could you really forgive me? Well, that's the business that he's in. And if Jesus is not the symbol of humility, I don't know who is, who humbled himself, to the point of death. He took on the form of a bondservant to the point of death. It's the reason there's the manger and the cross, that he came in the flesh. That those are symbols of humility, and they should be motivation to us. Hey, if anybody would come after me, deny himself. Pick up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus will be a path of humility and forgiveness. And so what does Philemon want to be known for? What is he going to do? And I love how he says in verse 14, but it's going to be of your own accord. This is on you. This is an opportunity for you. Are you going to do what is fair, right, and just? And he can. He could absolutely cause for punishment or even the death penalty against Onesimus. Or are you going to do grace, mercy, and forgiveness? See, a lot of times as Christians, we want to do what is fair, right, and just because that's what God's word says. Absolutely, and we're afraid if we don't do the truth that people will think that, oh, we're, we're condoning other lifestyles and behaviors. And we're afraid if we show too much grace, then we're not holding to the truth. But you have this beautiful combination from Jesus that he's both, that he holds to what is fair, right, and just, and he also holds to grace, mercy, and forgiveness. See, a lot of times I think the struggle within the church isn't to do what is fair, right, and just. 
And we say that a lot of times, like, oh, are you preaching the truth? Are you preaching the truth? Yes, we need to. But are we preaching grace as well? Are we allowing a space for people who are not walking with the Lord? Or if they are, it's a very shallow faith that at any moment you're kind of wondering, are they walking away from it or not? And that's not even to get into the theology aspect of it. But is there a space for people to struggle through their understanding of Jesus and in the church? Are we providing that for them or do we always want to do what is just right? Because we don't want the tag put to us. So then there's pride again, that we need humility. And the world's going to look at us. The world probably looked at Philemon. You got to be crazy. This guy stole from you and now you're going to invite him to your table. Like, can you imagine going to Thanksgiving a couple years later from this? Here's Philemon and Onesimus just eating. Like, hey, how do you guys know each other? Oh, great story. He actually used to be my slave. Then he stole from me. Then he ran away. Then he accepted the Lord and came back. And you forgave him? Absolutely. You got to be crazy. Yeah, yeah. The world around us that does not understand Christ and the virtues that he leads and gives us are going to think we're crazy. That's why Francis Chan wrote a book, Crazy Love. There's one in the hub talking about crazy happiness, talking about the crazy joy that we have in living for Jesus. The world should think we're a little nuts. I mean, we're already thinking about ourselves. Why are we worried about that? They're going to think we're crazy. But according to the world's standards and their values, the concept of biblical forgiveness is crazy. And it's awesome. And we're standing here because of it. That if we've been forgiven so much, how can we hold back the very forgiveness that we've been given and give that to others? If we've been forgiven much here, don't we have confidence that we could go to our brother and say, hey, please forgive me just as Christ forgave me? I mean, this is the model and the standard of which how forgiveness operates. And so going back to Matthew in closing, if you want to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 6. This sermon that Jesus gives in the middle of it, he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, underline it. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Because if we can't turn our cheek, if we can't give up our tunic and our cloak, if we can't even walk a second mile, how are we ever going to deny ourselves? pick up a cross and follow Jesus. That he's already introducing the idea that it is not about us. That it is about us being children of God. And this is how we operate. And so we, we could read that and think, oh, so that we may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. This is how we have to act to keep our relationship with the Lord. But we have it different. It's not for our relationship with the Lord that we forgive and we operate and love our enemies and we pray for those that persecute us but it's from our relationship with the Lord as sons and daughters of the Father. It is from our relationship with the Lord. That's where the power of our forgiveness, not from, oh, you're so, Philemon, you're such a great dude to forgive Onesimus. I'm not great. The Lord is great. He 
He is the motivation. He's the one that empowers me to be able to forgive them. And then there's still going to be a work inside of you not to want to take that back and hold on to it because we love to do that. Oh, yeah, I forgive you a little bit, and then we pull it back. And we want to hold on to that bitterness and that hate and that envy and that anger. But listen to what Paul's saying. Refresh my heart in Christ. See, there's a work there for, to refresh Paul's heart. There's a work there to refresh Onesimus' heart. There's a work there for the body. They're going to be watching to see how Philemon reacts. It's going to be refreshing to them. But when we fail in giving forgiveness, you know who we're hurting the most? Ourselves. Refresh your hearts. That just like Philemon, there might be a work that God wants to do in your heart in regard to someone else. And your ability to forgive them or not has nothing to do with them. Has everything to do with who you are. Because they could still be the same dirty, rotten, sinner, scoundrel, as my grandma would say, scallywag that there is. Your forgiveness of them says nothing of them. It says everything of who you are in Christ. So be a Philemon. Allow God to work and move in your life. Let's pray. Father, Father, it's a challenging word. Forgiveness is something that we will always struggle with, Lord, and you know this about us. So we are asking, give us grace and mercy and love and truth beyond our understanding and ability. Empower us through your Holy Spirit to operate and to act as sons and daughters of you, knowing that this is the path, this is the road that you have called us to walk, a one of forgiveness, one of humility, one of grace and love. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us, no matter how big the issue is, no matter how small the issue is, we would seek reconciliation, we would seek restoration, we would seek unity. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. So that when people would see us, they wouldn't see us, Lord. They would see you. And they would see that transforming work and the power of your gospel and of your word at work in us. That it wouldn't be just, again, the theology that we know, but what we live out. Give us that kind of faith, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said... Amen. For your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said.